Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with Teos Abadia. And and also a special guest this week talking about not one but two things, and you're gonna have to wait to find out what those two things are, is Alex Cammer. Hey Alex, how is it going? Oh, I'm great. Uh delighted to be hanging with you guys again. And and you're we coming are... at us from the game hole. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I thought it'd be more atmospheric that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a lot of weight behind you. Gaming <laughs> history weight as well as physical tonnage. <laughs> so one of the reasons, uh, Alex, that we have you on is because a week from when this show drops, Gamehole Con will officially be beginning. And uh, I know you've been on the show before to talk about Game Hole Con, as well as some a project you've worked on. But let's dig in one more time and let's tell people out there who may be new to the show, new to the convention scene, what is Game Hole Con? Sure, I'd uh, be happy to. Well, uh, I guess the most, the briefest and most succinct way to understand Game Hole Con is that it's a bad idea that's gotten out of control. Um, <laughs> uh, so what that means is like a lot of things that are hatched around the gaming table where I'm presently sitting. This is exactly where the idea of Gamehole Con was hatched. Uh, and it was more of a, wouldn't it be funny if we did? Or boy, I think we probably could do that. Not like, hey, let's do a, a serious get together business plan project thing. Um, it was more of a response of thinking about the fact that Gen Con had left Wisconsin to uh, move to Indianapolis, which was a great move for them. Uh, but it left, it was a bummer for us because, you know, right down the road was Gen Con. And now it's a little more than just down the road. Uh, so we thought, man, Madison is such a cool gaming town. We still lead the world in per capita game stores. We have this wonderful university. We have the rich gaming tradition of Dungeons and Dragons literally being born just miles away from here. Um, you know, let's give it a shot. And so we did. And, you know, looking around the room at the, in who we had around the table, we had some, you know, capable people, you know, professionals and people who know how to do things. And uh, so it, uh, what we, we sought out to do was to uh, set up and run the kind of show that we wanted to go to. <clears throat> so it means um, games that are, first of all, awesome and uh, varied uh, that start on time. Uh, with GMs that show up on time. Uh, when you show up, your badges are ready. They have your correctly spelled name. You have a schedule. You have game tickets. Everything's clearly laid out. You know where to go next. You know where to find things, uh, and so on. And that's you know that's the Swiss German and me. You know, taking over with you know every detail has to be sorted out and perfect. Uh, and uh, and same with the other guys. And so what's happened is that uh, ten years ago, almost to to the day, uh, you know, about two weeks from now, we had the first one and 400 some people showed up and to a much to our surprise um and then since then we've been growing at a 30 to 40 percent rate uh every year uh barring only the covid years so now we have a show you know you guys have seen and sean you've been around for a little longer than Teos, but um you know you've seen this thing grow and you'll notice it again this year uh, we've had another big surge in growth uh in our challenge is to not lose any of the awesome and experience that is GameholeCon despite the growth. Uh, you know, and, and growth growth is good. That means we can do more fun things, uh, but we absolutely are not willing to lose any of the experience that has made our show so fun uh, and personable and the great energy around it. Uh, and so uh, that's that's what GameHole has become. It's a show now that's probably going to be around over 6,000 attendees this year. Uh, so making wow. us... Yeah, we're the largest majority RPG convention in the world. 
uh, because we have, that's where we are, we're a majority RPG. There are bigger conventions, Gen Con, obviously, even Origins, but they have tons and tons of board games, uh, which actually makes a lot of sense because it's a much more efficient use of space than <laughs> lots and lots and lots and lots of role-playing games. Uh, but that's what we do. That's what we love. And that's why we do it. And we don't, we've never cared about the bottom line. I mean, obviously, if this were a big commercial venture, we probably wouldn't have called it Gamehole Con which is a, uh, you know, named after our game group because it was in my basement. And, you know, so I don't, I wouldn't have to explain what is Gamehole Con, you know, for the thousandth time, you know, and, and you know, like, where's that name come from? It sounds a little yucky. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, we're just children uh, fooling around in my basement. <laughs> Um, and so we thought it'd be funny and it, it is, and it, and it still is. And, uh, uh, I think it's one of those names that people don't forget. <laughs> yeah, that is um, true. But, yeah. yeah. I think this will be my fifth or sixth or maybe even seventh year attending. And I still say, well, I have game hole con coming up in October and I'll just get this look from people. So I'll have to say it's named after the convention organizers <laughs> game room, which he calls the game. And I feel like I've, told the story a thousand times yeah. you know being five steps removed from from the actual story but uh thereby yeah, be becoming yeah. our unwitting advocate exactly exactly <laughs> and, always and, the teacher i always have to explain and and advocates we are because you really do run a fantastic show and and kudos to you and to the team because it is a a, a great experience it's one of those shows that's really easy when folks say you know, would I would I want to go to GameholeCon? Do you recommend it? It's so easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, because it is it it has a nice feel of being all in one place. Um, I wouldn't call it small, but but it is small in that it's approachable. It's easy to get from one end to the other, easy to find, easy to get going. Um, but it offers a lot and and a big breadth of games, and I I've loved being able to play a wide variety of games. Uh, and then seeing a lot of really cool people there too never hurts. But but it is it's a wonderful con. So congrats on that. Yeah. Wow. That's both of you are very kind, and I, I appreciate your your support has been you know awesome throughout the years. So so thank you. And uh, yeah, we're just gonna keep rolling. This is year ten. I can't believe it. I I don't know how that you know you, when you look at your kids, it's sort of the same kind of experience. Like what? Wait a minute. Uh, why are you leaving with a car now? What's going on? You know. And so um, it's sort of the same thing. Uh, Gamehole Con now is so big uh, relatively from to relative to where we started that uh, in large part I've been rendered redundant once the show starts. You know I. Congrats. I don't really know how to do anything. I don't really know, you know, so I now I get to go back to what I want to do, which is running games. So I get to run games during Game Con and I just hang out with you guys and, you know, do stuff like that. I don't, you know, but the, the first few years, you know, furiously passing up edges and all that kind of stuff. We have people who actually know how to do that a lot better than I do. So I just stay out of the way. It really is. People have asked me, you know, what's great about it. It's it really is sort of a distillation of all the great things that are about conventions, but in a manageable size. You have all the guests that you would find at a Gen Con, but accessible. You find all the games that you might want to run or play, but they're accessible. You can actually get in and, and find them, right? All the vendors that you might want are there without the dross of everything else going on around it. It's 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 such a you know, it's such a nice, closely knit feeling convention. Um where you run into the people that you know, or you run into fans, or you run into creators, uh, who are just all there mingling and and enjoying this hobby we love. So, uh, you know, kudos to you, and it'll be interesting to see how it grows, if you can keep that feel, right? Yeah. That's that's probably the challenge. Yeah. yeah. Well, we absolutely are going to because that's the there's just that.
that's mission critical. I mean, this is not, you know, no one, no one is, is making a living doing this. Uh, that's, you know, no one's going to retire and start to, you know, it's just not going to, that's not the way this is going to go. So uh, it's just vitally important to us that everyone has a great time, that the vendors do well, that the artists do well. And so there's, there's a reason that we have a formula why our vendor hall grows in the pace it does. And that is uh, so they can do well. Um, you know, they, it matches our, it's in step with our attendance uh, because we want everyone to want to come back. We want everyone to say they had a great time, and all of our all of our uh, return our return numbers uh, data is extremely high. We're way higher than all, all the other shows, and I think that's you know I think that's a function of that. Um, and you know that not to try to sound like we're so clever or something like that. We just went out and asked you know how do you do this? We spent a lot of time thinking about it, and then what do we what do we want to do? What do we what do we want to have? You know, as an end product. And that's all, you know, so that's we're just listened, uh, thought, talked amongst ourselves about the kind of things that we liked and what we'd want to experience when we went to a convention. Uh, and, you know, I've been going to the Gen Con since the mid 80s, you know, and uh, same with the other, a lot of the other guys and, uh, and, and conventions all around the world. And and I, I'm always loved to go out to other conventions and, and just absolutely shamelessly steal something <laughs> that they do incredibly well that we don't do. It's like, oh, my gosh, that's a great idea. And it's, absolutely. So there's a it, there's I don't know if there's. There are too many original thoughts, really, if you distill down. <laughs> I think it's just a lot of it's a, it's an amalgamation of a lot of good ideas from a lot of different people. Right. And uh, as we've mentioned, Teos and I will be there. Uh, Teos, what what are you doing uh, that game? Home? Uh, what am I doing? Uh, I know that I'm in a podcast with you, Mastering Dungeons Live. Uh, that's pretty awesome. And then let's see, I am running the clockwork tower an adventure that I wrote several times. I am doing a seminar <laughs> narrative design and tabletop games and another one breaking into tabletop design. I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. And I will also be doing four different panels. Uh, one, uh, one for Ghostfire gaming called one world, many games, one game, many worlds talking about, doing different sorts of games in the same setting. Mm -hmm. uh, Mastering Dungeons Live, as Teos mentioned. Uh, I'm also doing one on tabletop role-playing game system design and world building for tabletop role-playing games. And I'm running an Aurora uh, adventure with along with Joe Rosso from Ghostwire Gaming called We All Fall Down. So if you backed Aurora, oh, thank you. And if you haven't, you'll get a taste of it if you come play this game. So. And Alex, you are also running games, correct? That, that's right. I'm uh, running. Uh, well, let's see. One of them is a a silly little thing that's going to be deeply disappointing to people. Um, I can't believe people signed up for it. I don't know what's wrong with them. I even made so in the description say, don't sign up for this game. It's going <laughs> to suck. Uh, but they're signing up for it anyway. Um, it sold out immediately, which is I just don't understand what's going on with people. But it's a it's a I'm I'm doing a, a spoof on the keep on the borderlands. It's um it's called the border town development community. And what's <laughs> happened is that uh, the keep on the borderlands has experienced some gentrification and a building boom. And uh, there's a condo development going on there. There's a shady real estate developer that's moved in and taken over the position of mayor of border border town. Uh, and the caves of chaos are now a theme park called the caves of fun. Um, which uh, your admission is free. If you do buy a condo, you have lifetime admission to the Caves of Fun, which is one of the selling points of the condo development. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, I don't know, whatever. We'll see how that goes. Uh, then my, the, the, my, actual, my actual two games are uh, then I'm running 
one of my favorite alien scenarios. I don't, I just may, we, we may have talked about this before. I just adore the free league games and the year zero engine. Uh, and alien is just such an awesome con game. It's just so cinematic and so over the top and everyone knows exactly what they're getting. You know, that you say three words, they know exactly where they are and what everything looks like and what everyone smells like. It's tremendous. It's so fun to run a cons. Uh, and then I'm running an excerpt from uh, my new book, which is called The End of Everything. Uh, and that's going to be a, a one piece uh, that kind of lends itself well to a four-hour session, which is kind of hard to do out of a big campaign book. But there's one piece in particular that sort of works well for that. And I've run that a bunch of times, and that's been that's gone over well. So those are my three games. Awesome. And we will talk later about that new book. But first, we need to get to our listener corner, since we have so many people who have written in recently. We're going to take one question this week. We'll get to the other ones. Uh, we, we're collecting them. We will get to them. But this question from Vintage Zebra via YouTube was so keen that I figured that we really should talk about this because it's important, especially in the context of us covering other types of games other than D&D on the show. So Vintage Zebra says, my main group has been playing third edition for over 20 years. I'm ready for a big, big change. Uh, I've had the chance to play 5th edition on and off, but my turn to DM rolls around again, and I plan to survey several different games that use different mechanics and emphasize different aspects of role-playing. For instance, I'm very interested in running the Star Trek game or a game of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Do you have any advice on how to introduce a game, a group to a new game? The mechanics are important, of course, but also how to teach a group about the kind of stories a game is built to create and the ways a player is supposed to interact with that world. And this is just an incredibly cogent question because that more than anything is the the problem with running a different game for a group that is used to one game. Uh, and I we've probably all run into this as game masters, if we've run a group through one system over and over and over again, after running AD&D, I tried Top Secret and Paranoia and Torg and Dungeon World later and Gamma World, and I didn't prep the players correctly. So they okay. ended up playing Top Secret and Paranoia and Torg and Dungeon World and Gamma World exactly like D&D. So the question now is, how do you do that? How do you get them ready? Uh, I will. I've opened the floor to to this. I'll, I'll jump in on, on mechanics and leave the juicier bits to you guys. But but I like whenever I run a game that you're trying to teach the how it works. Uh, I will try to create scenarios. The first scenarios that we're going to experience will do things one at a time, so that you have a chance to register and kind of log that and learn that. So. The D&D equivalent would be you start in a situation where you're going to make skill checks. So you look at that part of the character sheet. You figure out those roles. You have a couple of them, right? There's no pressure. It's all very relaxed, and we get that down. Great. Roll D20s. You want it to be big. You're adding this modifier over here. And then we go to the next encounter, and it might be a very simple thing like a trap firing at you, and you've got a either disable it or break it or something like that. It's a very simple one, two little interaction. that's a little bit combat-ish and we get there. And then we can go into a combat that's simple, short, not high stakes or anything like that. And that lets us learn the combat mechanics. And from there we can go wherever we want because we've got the basics of the game down mechanically. And I would do that as well for whatever other game system I'm running where I'll break down a couple of components of the game one by one 
nice and intro, and then you can go from there. Any thoughts, Alex? Yeah, it's a why it's what quite a subject. Um, the uh, uh, I guess first off, it's have to have some buy-in from the whole group. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting sub-subject of that's kicking around recently about, you know, we've been talking about player agency for forever, or at least for the last couple of years, but also DM or GM agency. And that is, hey, players, help your DM or GM out. You know, if if they if they would like to, they're, they're presenting a story to you, a uh, you know, just give it a try, even though you may not like Savage, what? I'm not sure if I want to play that, you know, just try it. Uh, just give it a try first from the outset. And then I think the the GM in that new game system, uh, when we try something new here in the game hole, I try to, first of all, send out a primer that everyone can look at. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the importance of a session zero that is important in any game is is just doubly so with, and that's exactly what Tales you're describing, uh, is that is get together and really kind of splash around with the mechanics a little bit first, uh, just to get everyone comfortable. Um and then you know the the what your your the your listener who uh, posed posed the question uh, suggested several properties that like Alien have uh, trigger things with people that we learn we we know what that is we know what that world looks like uh, that's helpful I think if you're going to get a group to play a different game to uh, to mess around with an IP that they might be familiar with already is a, is a real good place to start um, and then I think finally is to really be frank. And understand how the difference of this new game is mechanically at its heart than Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. If you're a D&D &D dedicated D&D &D group, as the game hole was for 20 plus years before we even thought of trying some of the game, um, that accepting the fact that D&D &D is a superhero game at in its chassis, and that something like Call of Cthulhu is absolutely not. And that's a real important distance. So, hey, players, let's, you got to just, as a threshold matter, you got to appreciate this axiomatic mm -hmm. fact um, and then once that's then then you I think you have a better chance because then yeah you can't obviously play Call of Cthulhu like D and D and a lot of those games just won't work. Um, so I don't know for better or worse that's that's the, my 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 rambling thoughts on the subject. No, that that covers every pretty much everything that I was going to say. The only couple of things that are sort of tied to to that, but maybe I'll take it a step further, is if you're going to play a game of Star Trek, sit down and watch an episode of Star Trek. And say this is this is the game we're going to play. So everyone is on the same page because to Star Trek for me is like the original series in the next generation. Star Trek for somebody else may be Brave New World. Star Trek for somebody else may be the new movie series that that's out. And each of those are different things. And a game, a story that are set in those different series are going to be different from each other. So sit down and say, all right, this is, this is the kind of story we're going to tell with the game that we're about to play. Then you can get into the mechanics. And it was funny because when Teos was saying how you would do it for D&D, D&D is sort of a very, I call it a microtransactional game in the sense that there are these little tiny discrete things that you do and they don't they don't necessarily mean a lot in in the holistic story that's going on but all right let's all make perception checks mm -hmm. what does the perception check mean probably not a heck of a lot then there are games where everything is writ larger where every check that you make is actually a big macro transaction that means a lot more. So getting players to understand that potential difference in games, right? In Star Trek, as we talked about with the 2D20 system, you may make checks that have a zero uh, 
difficulty because you're just trying to build up momentum. And that momentum is a big part of the story where your expertise and your your uh, goals are a big part of the game. And so getting people to understand that is is important, yeah. is more important than maybe those step-by-step things that are important in D&D. Well, and I think, you know, I started with mechanics because it, at some point you want to feel, you want the players to feel like they understand what they can do and how they do it so that everything else is easier on top of it. But you, like as you both said, it's really important to have those conversations of what the larger thing is. So like I'm preparing uh, to to run Blade Runner by the same free league system, right? And one of the concepts of Blade Runner is that there's a lot of Kind of introspection where you are each player is thinking through how human am i how do i deal with the oppressive nature of the world and what am i doing to either try to exert my force upon it or to give into it that's part of the big question right and how am i going to handle big things that are going to happen big theme things right like like what it means to have rights <laughs> right and 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 so you want to help your players understand that, hey, this game that we're going to play is about this, right? So you want to get pages of the book that maybe talk about it, or you want to ex- provide a scene maybe that's a, a preview scene that's kind of like almost a prequel movie that they're going to see to get them into that mood of, of the concept and help them around that. And it can be hard, right? Like like you might play Aliens and someone thinks like, well, yeah, I want to be like the indestructible whatever. Well, great as long as you're ready for the really hard downfall at the end because indestructible person character doesn't really go hand in hand with alien right this is this is a tale of horror and probably at the end demise so you want to be in that headspace and help players get to that headspace around the concept and and what it is what are the themes of this game that matter that we want to all play with yeah that that all makes total total sense to me you know and also mechanically you know just taking blade runner for example and compare it to fifth edition dungeons and dragons uh checks are much less frequent you know where i it's interesting when i play a game of alien people want to say hey i want to make a perception check what's the equivalent no what are you trying to see you see it you know it just is you know so uh that's some some games are just very different that way you know in, in terms of that, that's also an interesting thing i've always noticed when i play an off a non D game uh, at a con uh that's an that i always have to like it, the, these are skill checks in a lot of these games are big moments you know it's not anything anything trivial we're not gonna you just know it you can see it you can do it you know you know how to do this you're a engineer or a soldier or whatever you know how to do all that stuff um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And you know what? Good for D and D good for D and D about that's a, that, what a great problem to have though, is yeah. like, we have to, you know, say here's D and D this is slightly different. You just have to think about it in different terms. Right? That's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So vintage zebra, thank you for that astute, excellent question. And we look more, look forward to answering more questions next time, but For now, let's get into our news and commentary section. And the big drop this week was the next playtest packet, playtest packet number eight, which had the Bastion system and cantrips. And Teos, I know you had a lot to say about this Bastion system, and you said it uh, via YouTube already. So uh, what what did you talk about on... Yeah, I only took an hour to talk about it. So it's not like it. I mean, honestly, it was one of those things I was like, I'm not going to make this video. And then I just kept on rattling around in my brain because what's fascinating about the Bastion system is that it does not leverage 
kind of anything else that's in the game in 5e other than it gives you some gold rewards and it gives you some rewards that are very much D&D things, right? It'll give you advantage on a check or things like that. It might bring you back to life. But it, it's kind of really surprising to me that this is a 21-page system. If you think of that, you know, without any art, it's 21 pages. So it's an amazing long system. And the basic of it is at fifth level, you're gonna, you can get a bastion. Your bastion is going to take turns. And the expectation is six to seven times a level where each one is a week. And on those turns, you are either in the bastion and giving a specific order, or you have to go with the general option, which is called maintain mode. And the bastion will generate points. If it's a maintain mode, that's all it does. If you're giving it specific orders, then it depends on what facilities you're using that get activated to generate points. Um, and it, it, if that already sounds like, wow, that sounds like a lot, well, there's even more to it, right? There are basic facilities, and it's sort of funny. There's some funny things like, choose two of a kitchen, a washroom, a bedroom, except there are actually more. It's like, well, do I want a toilet in my room <laughs> in my castle? <laughs> and then there are these special facilities that give you a variety of benefits, and they are tiered. So it it gets complicated in terms of like, it's not as simple as, hey, I want to DM, I want to run a tavern. Well, the tavern is a level 13 structure. So no, you can't. <laughs> you know? there, it, it's a little weird in that sense. Um, I overall, you know, I, I came at the end of the video and I said, well, I, it's not a system that I would use in its current incarnation. And I wish that it did it made a little more mathematical sense. I wish that instead of generating gold, it used gold. And I wish that it tied into the larger rules that already exist in the game, like downtime, which it doesn't. It doesn't leverage that at all. It doesn't use hirelings. It, in fact, abstracts these things away and, and maybe even undermines them. So it'll say, you can just get a magic item. So why would we bother using the old downtime rules for it, right? Or you, it, the system, is it just runs a place so you don't have to run the rules for running a business anymore and so yeah i didn't love it <laughs> yeah i it was interesting well first of all in, in case this didn't get uh translated well the bastion system is basically talking about characters having their own strongholds yeah so if you go all the way back to ad and d days where at certain levels you could get a keep you could get a wizard's tower you could get these things and what that meant was really, yes, uh, Teos is holding up some of the old books. And there are actually other systems that have been built for 5e that that do this, right? There is the, uh, of course, MCDM. in Acquisitions Incorporated, we had franchi franchises. MCDM has had a couple different books. Did you know that for Oracle of War, we created a salvage base system? Yeah. And if you look at that salvage base system, you may see some similarities. I'm not saying in any way that that was taken from that, but if you design long enough, you will start to see similarities between things that have been done and things that will be done in the future because there are only certain paths you can take when you design something. Yeah. And so I was looking at it along those lines of, how is it usable with what's come before? And as you say, Teos, we already had downtime days, but this doesn't even touch downtime, uh, which is interesting. So the question then becomes, will downtime remain a thing 
for <laughs> no. the 2024 version? Will it will it be use downtime or use this or use both as you wish? Uh, it, it's an interesting concept. Alex, did you get a chance to, to look at this? I, I, I haven't. I haven't. And I, I saw that it popped up and I thought, hmm, um, D&D's never been really great for stronghold rules, quite frankly. Uh, and I, I because it's usually just a, appended on to a different game. You know, it's just not designed for that. I think the games that do a better job with strongholds, are, you know, building are more that have a, a express uh, resource management component to the game. Um, then it, it works better. You know, there's an economy already in place of, of you know, mechanically and actual economy. Uh, the one that I can think of that I, that I like for that is uh, Forbidden Lands does a really great job. Mm-hmm. But this is a game where you have to check your resources every day for food and water. You know, so that's and because of that, you know, your your ability to be an artisan then so on makes more sense and it works in the game. It's not doesn't feel like an add on. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, we, we did we screw on stuff like that when we were kids. Of course we did. We all had castles and all that kind of stuff. And it's absurd. And, you know, this. but uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that. Um, that's that's going to be a big a big mover for those guys and and trying to sell the new rules but that's just me that's that's a great observation alex because it occurred to me that this may have been their weapon mastery for the dmg book right that they were hoping folks would go ooh, this is like super exciting the way that they got an overall very positive strong reaction weapon mastery and i i don't know if they're going to get that from this for those reasons that that we've mentioned um one of the things that i said when I look at this stronghold system in Bastion, can I run it with most 5e adventures? And the answer isn't yes. <laughs> it's no, which is a shame, right? Because what is the point of a system that I can't fit into most campaigns? Then why is it in the DMG, right? Whereas other, and, and you might say, well, it's just hard to, but the patron system fits into most adventures, right? downtime fits into most adventures like a lot of these systems that 5e has added do work and 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 a stronghold system could work the franchise system works while adventuring you can see that in the ack inc adventure right like we could have a system that would be more useful to more dms and more games and and, and so i think that if you're going to put something in the core book it really should work that way yeah when i looked at it i said okay this is just a play test and they're just trying to see if people are want a system like this so they built the system and they presented it as imperfect as it is just to sort of get a general feel for okay yeah this is cool what so i sort of skimmed it and read some parts and was like okay yeah that works um that might not and then i saw that as you mentioned teos you take bastion turns six or seven times each level and each one lasts a week and i was like wait a second i've been waiting for D to tell me how to handle leveling, right? How how many encounters should you have before you level? How long should that be? How many encounters should you take before a long rest? And it D&D has, in this edition, never, never told me. But this sort of does, mm-hmm. right? This sort of says, eh, every level you should, uh, you should bastion turn six or seven times. Yeah. So that's six or seven weeks. Okay, now now I'm going to go back and I'm going to think, okay, how many encounters should I be right? Right, I'm now trying to build that system that I've been waiting for using this, and I'm not sure if it's going to work or not. <laughs> but it's it's at least an interesting concept to oh. to start to to think through. 
I, I hope it really is in its early stages, like you're talking about. I worry that, you know, the calendar says November or October. <laughs> Getting ahead of myself. Like the calendar says October, and, and I worry that they'll rush things through. But the, the video where Crawford talks about it does maybe suggest that they have uh, other concepts than just the granular rules. So he talks at the sort of higher level, and he suggests, hey, you could easily run this with the Planescape adventure. And I'm thinking, I don't think you can. But at least that that's the goal. Like, I'm happy to hear that's the goal, because I think that should be the goal. And so maybe they'll tweak it to to have a, a different way that it applies. But I, I I worry that it's answering the wrong questions overall as a system. Right. I could see I could see campaigns that they build use this, and I would rather see that. Right. The the third adventure they put out with these new rules is all about protecting your homeland. Yeah. And so this Bastion system becomes important. Then, then you can it's start not pulling in stuff from other games. Well, it's it's not universal, but it's yeah. You know, we've said before on the show, not every system is going to work. But if you put in a system that works for this adventure, then you're teaching DMs how to use that right. system, and then yeah. they can port it into their home games correctly. Yeah. And so that's why I'd rather see this as part of something else that DMs could say, "Oh, cool, it worked well in this game, but I can see how it wouldn't work in the next campaign I'm running." But if I build my own campaign. Yeah, I, I could use it there. John, did you happen to look at the other part of this? The the you know the end of this document, there are these cantrip enhancements. Did you take a look at those? I did, and I was actually the the ones I skimmed. I was happy. Yeah, uh, I, was, I feel like they fixed some cantrips. Yeah. They yeah. are good. I mean, I I worry a little bit that they're good enough that you get more of the like, well, I'll just use my cantrip every turn because. That's a perfectly serviceable option, right? It's it's more of the Eldritch Blast type approach. Like, I'll just do this always. It, you know, Toll the Dead, right, is kind of in that category where unless I need something else, I might as well just Toll the Dead. And a lot of these are, are stronger to the point where I, I, I'm curious whether that will hurt play at all. But probably not. Probably this is all good to fix these. No, I'm I'm of the I'm of the school that I don't mind that. If a player wants to do that, and that they're happy doing that, I'm totally fine. Instead of taking a 20-minute turn, summoning 12 <laughs> things and rolling attacks for each of them to just cast this spell because it works. But you know, <laughs> you know, kudos to them to to the folks at Wizards for actually recognizing the fact that something like True Strike was never used or Spare the Dying was basically just a medicine check that you didn't have to roll. Now you can at least do it from a distance. Uh, and 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 that gives you something other than just I I have to walk up to it and then cast the spell. Yeah. Why bother? Uh, so Blade yeah, Ward, good. Any of that, yeah. good uh, yeah, I'm 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 at least happy for that. All right. Well, Alex, unless you have anything to add there, we will continue to the next bit of news, which I do believe pertains particularly to you. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So Alex and Alan Patrick have a new book out called The End of Everything. And rather than me try to fumble my way through a description, I'm going to let Alex tell you what it's about. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, my, my buddy Alan and I have been working on this book. Uh, we hatched this plan back in, uh, Taos, you were there. It was in uh, 
Winter Fantasy 2020. I remember running into you there. <laughs> but uh, we were back then starting to talk. Yeah, we were starting to talk about should we we should write a book together. Uh, hey, I've been given uh, a publisher wants me to write a book, a big adventure book in this certain section of their their proprietary setting called the Lost Lands. Uh, what do you think? And so we started kicking around, and we both very quickly gravitated toward you know some of our personal interests, which are cosmic horror. And so in brief, Alan and I are attempting to bring in elements of the Cthulhu mythos into Dungeons and Dragons uh, while still keeping the game Dungeons and Dragons um, at as we you know, this tales with what we talked about earlier in different games. Uh, and I think I explicitly mentioned this, that a game Call of Cthulhu is fundamentally different from Dungeons and Dragons. This is still Dungeons and Dragons. Um, there are some new mechanics that uh, we hatched to uh, hopefully impart, um, especially a building sense of doom as you ineluctably face the end of everything. Um, and um, that you, uh, as you adventure across this this huge uh, part of the world and things start getting worse and worse, um, the we have a what's some called a corruption value, and that's not a unique uh, idea. The, the concept of corruption is used in a lot of games. Um, but unlike in, you know sanity or madness, this is a a a uh, a number that tracks your uh, physical and spiritual toll while being in this region, being exposed to the miasmic pestilential forces that are coming from somewhere. Um, and but those things don't prevent you from being a bard or a ranger or a paladin or whatever. They have some short-term consequences, and over time, it's first of all it starts with a number and you decline. But that declination doesn't have anything to do with you mechanically as you play the game. It has tremendous consequences at the end. Um, and which I thought was kind of fun is that it has not just negative consequences. It's a wheel or woe kind of idea that you can be so corrupted that it's possible that certain real terrible creatures don't even recognize you as an enemy because you are so corrupted. And that has some very big advantages. Um, so that's what the book is a, is at, at its heart. That's what mechanically it is. It's it's also uh, a big investigation because you you know while it might be that a glass will suddenly slide off the table and shatter, or some shutters will bang, uh, or you know the and dead, uh, the uh, dead are starting to rise. Uh, you know, wait, is the you know, the seasons actually going in reverse now, or crops are failing? <laughs> you know, this stuff builds and builds and builds as you go forward. You have to figure out why the hell that's happening, and it's not obvious. It's not obvious at all. It takes a quite a quite a research adventure to figure that all out. Uh, going to exotic locations and uh, experiencing all kinds of horrid things. Um, as your characters, uh, you know, continue to um, experience this this corruptive force that affects every living thing uh, in this region, and if the characters are not stalwart enough to get to the end and put a stop to uh, a, a being of mythos uh, 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 capacity and, and uh, fame, um, that's it. That's the end of everything. This plane will cease to exist. Um, so there are very real stakes in this one. And, uh, uh, Al and I had a lot of fun doing it. You know, we had, it's just so cool. We got to lean into all that and, um, wonderful. Uh, that's why it's taken years. We've really play tested it hard. I've never personally play tested anything nearly as hard and as expensively as we did, because we'd want to make sure that we kept that kept D and D and it feels like D and D, but that the players were actually tense and they were, you know, had some element of cosmic horror without being, you know, like gothic horror, jump horror, any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's not, you know, super gross or anything like that. It's more, you know, psychologically interesting, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, that's in, 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 in brief what, uh, what we, what we're trying to do.
I've only skimmed it, but I it, I was struck by the beginning of of looking through uh, how events play out that it it feels much as it would in a novel or TV show where in the early stages you're seeing these signs of things going wrong, but there isn't an immediate clear, as you said, answer as to why, but there are rather these these breadcrumbs and indications of things going in the wrong way. And it felt very cinematic to me, which I appreciated. I, I appreciate that. You guys are veteran adventure designers. You know how challenging it is to write a an adventure that is that encompasses that will allow exploration in any number of directions while having a central narrative. You know, that's 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 one of the more difficult things to, to I, I hope we've captured here. I'm not sure. I think we have maybe, uh, but it's extremely hard to do. Uh, and so that's what you know, that's why it's not. Hey, you get the, the hiring NPC tells you to go, you know, and that's what that's it. You know, and that's that's uh, you're not you're not on a quest to find the thing. That's uh, it's much more obscure and yeah. uh, and and weird than that. Uh, dig the layout. The right. And when Fantastic. will this be available? Oh, yeah. Oh. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, you guys saw a a very 98% rough draft. Uh, this week is uh, this should be done. So, one of the things I did here, uh, the deal was with this publisher, it's Frog God Games. I said, hey, if I'm going to do it, the deal is we have to have a completed book before we start the Kickstarter. So, as soon as a Kickstarter fulfills, bam, everyone gets their book. Um, I like everyone else have all kinds of Kickstarters out there that are, you know, who knows where from fulfillment. Uh, I just didn't want to be associated with one of those in any way, shape or form. Not that Frog God has, they've always delivered on other things and I'm sure they would, but, uh, instead of backing a concept or an idea back this book, here it is, it's done and you'll get it immediately. Um, in fact, what we're doing, uh, they've allowed me to do some other things that are cool. Like we get to, there's a, and during the Kickstarter itself, which will start during GameholeCon, I think almost certainly probably the Thursday of GameholeCon, which is October 19. That's when the thing should launch. Um, you can get a collector's version, which has uh, a second cover, an alternate cover of it might, in fact, will feature the terrible being that is behind all this. Uh, and in between those two books in a slipcase is a GM screen. And that's the only way you can get the GM screen. Uh, which is actually going to be a very useful gem screen because if you guys looked at the book, even flipping through, you'll see there's lots of tables, um, lots of things happening, magical mishaps, corruption, all kinds of stuff that I would have loved to have a four panel gem screen as I did all that playtesting. Uh, same with Alan and everyone else. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So October 19, it should be launched by then. Um, it's going to go into distribution as well. We have a bunch of orders from various distributors distributors to buy the book. Uh, so it'll show up in game stores. Um, that'll probably be in early 24, I would imagine, given the print lag. You know, I don't, I'm not exactly sure. But the PDFs will go out to everyone in, you know, mid-November. Yeah, and, and I awesome. should make, make uh, we, we should make it clear that this is really a campaign, right? This is more than 200 pages. Uh, there are monsters and magic items. It's a, it's a full-fledged, really nicely playing out campaign. Uh, I particularly like the beginning of it. Does a really nice job of telling the DM what's coming up and and what to expect from the adventure. And yeah, looks great. Appreciate that. Yeah, there's some cool things like you know, Noel is a player playable uh, race here uh, because that's there. That's part of the history of this region. It's just such a forlorn and terrible place that they've faced so many common awful things that the gnolls summoned came when when the call went out and they said yeah we'll stand with you everyone else uh and so that you can play a gnoll character 
uh, and you know we have backgrounds and uh, different uh, uh, different character choices and tons and tons of monsters. And it's um, for a, a, a five player group. I think it's it's a, it's levels one through twelve. Uh, if it's you know four, it's probably a little slightly higher than that. Probably thirteen or fourteen. Um, you know, same problem you talked about earlier, Sean. You know, with milestones, and we try to do our best we can with that. You know, we should be around here. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you, as, as experienced DMs, you know, when you see it, yeah, that's the right level. Um, and, uh, so, uh, but we've, we really, tr we played it hard. It should be, you know, one through 12, I think is, I'm, I was real confident with that. I thought at first when I wrote it, it's gonna be one through 14, but then after we played it through, um, you know, the, the higher level characters, that's, that stuff was not really well play tested, never really was. And, uh, so it's, it's amazing what a 12th level care, you know, four 12th level characters can do. Um, yeah. you do. so you can definitely survive it. It's uh, so, definitely yeah. survivable at that point. And I'd say Alan Patrick is one of the people I trust to create great high level experiences. He's, he's on my short list of people that I go, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's high level, but by Alan. Okay. Yeah. 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 He, the, he the was great to work with. He had so many. Yes. Yeah. The end of everything is called and, uh, yeah, much, much props to Alan for a lot of the weirder ideas that came into the book. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Yeah. I believe that. <laughs> And last but not least in our news this week, we have D&D &D ending its Penguin, uh, Penguin Random House distribution chain. Uh, Teos, why don't you lead us through this last bit of news here? Sure. D&D uh, &D has always used a whole number of distributors to push books out from their warehouses to all the different places. So they don't mail it to your local gaming store. It goes through a distribution network. And those distributors handle sort of different responsibilities, and they sometimes, uh, often they overlap. There'll be multiple that cover a particular vehicle. Um, but Penguin Random House uh, announced that they are no longer involved, and Wizards quickly announced that as well. And that's a big deal because they are a major distributor, and they are particularly good at getting to places like Target and Barnes and Noble. Um, they also had been doing a lot of carrying of the books that we may not think of in everyday life, so things like the novel that's about the movie or the kids' books, things like that. So apparently the kids' books are going to continue to be through Random House. Uh, so those sort of licensed D&D titles will continue. But the hardback books will no longer be through Random House. And the reason is, it took a while to get to this, but the news finally broke that Hasbro has direct links to stores like Target and Barnes & Noble. So they will now move all that through Hasbro itself. So Wizards gets to pay Hasbro and Hasbro gets to overall not have paid anything for the movement of those books through the distribution network. Um, everybody's saying this probably won't have any big impacts for either 2024 or anything else. Um, but still, there are always those chances that things could be now being done slightly differently and it could have uh, impacts in terms of the growth to certain areas. Um, and, and there was a, a sort of fun quote Sean, I don't know if you saw the comicbook.com article. Yeah, it, it said, when news of the distribution agreement ended, first broke, some older Dungeons & Dragons fans recalled a previous breakup between the original D&D publisher, TSR, and Random House. But this is vastly different circumstances, but it's often pointed as one of the major incidents leading to TSR's bankruptcy. <laughs> uh, so yes, that, that that is true. What what I What I laughed about was, this news broke months ago, but nobody cared. And then somebody found it somewhere. And so they brought it up. And the the initial reaction for D&D &D or 
Watsy haters was, oh, look what they're doing. They're destroying the publishing industry as we know it. And then people were like, no, because they just they're distributing through different people. Well, they're think of the game stores. Well, it doesn't really affect the game stores because they have a different distributor. Well, and they kept and I just thought, what would have happened if they had said Watsy signs a deal with Random House to distribute books? It would have been the same, right? We still would have gotten this outpouring of rage from a certain faction of fans who just have to rage about something uh, Watsy related. So it was just, it was sort of funny. I chuckled as I saw all of the speculation, which was debunked step by step by step along the way until we get to the point where it's like, it probably doesn't affect much. It might, it might not. We don't know. Oh, this is what I, what I understand that this was in the works for a long time. Um, and it, the the roots of it, the reason why the Random House uh, piece was held onto for so long is that they were they handled the e-reader component of this. And obviously, with what Wizards going in, you know, into uh, you know acquiring D and D Beyond, that spelled the end of that relationship eventually. Um, so interesting. That does make sense. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really right. hard for fans these days to understand is the scale at which D and D operates, and that the things that we may have a real connection to like our gaming store is not the most important part of how D&D works or sells, right? Or that we might think about whether there's a glut of options being released in 2023 may feel very important to us, but may not affect the market at all. And, and part of the discussion on the blog series that I've been doing with, with D&D's numbers, you know, I see a lot of folks who just they'll see it through their particular lens. And unfortunately, the D&D &D business is so large that it increasingly has nothing to do through the with the lens that we see it through as the type of gamer we happen to be. Can't, can't, uh, can't argue with that. We will, of course, keep an eye not only on distribution and on sales, as Teos has been doing, but on every other business aspect of the hobby that comes across our desk. But now we're on to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to talk about 5e Planescape, the newest book of a series of quick releases, but Planescape is the latest, so that's where we're going to focus our attention. Yeah, I was going to say, Alex, oh, have ahead. you ever, you know, do you own a, a Planescape product or two? I mean, have you ever heard of this Planescape game? <laughs> Eh, that's funny. Yeah, I'm actually uh, putting uh, a shrink wrap copy of Planes of Chaos into the uh, the GameWorkCon uh, charity auction uh, because I had I realized I had three and that seemed excessive. So yes, I'm a big Planescape fan. I have all their products uh, from uh, that's the height of 2E in my opinion. It's the glory days of 2E for me. Uh, so no, I love those box sets were never to be never to be parallel, never to be matched. They were so awesome. So yeah, big Planescape fan. I'm excited. I can't. I have not gotten the book yet. I haven't. I'm getting it tomorrow. My copy comes from my friends at Wizard, so I can't wait to see it. That's awesome, mm -hmm. Sean. Yeah, I just want to say is. before you kick into just for folks who who may be tuning in at this point in the conversation that Alex is here, who runs the Game Hole Con and who had, which is a fantastic convention. Listen to our first part of this uh, podcast if if you uh, if you haven't. And you'll hear about his book, The End of Everything, which is coming out October 19th. I think I got that right. On Kickstarter. And Alex is also a collector, if you haven't noticed. He has a wee, a wee tiny collection there behind him of pretty <laughs> much everything ever released for D&D. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. And Platescape was a second edition product, first of all. 
Uh, one Zeb Cook was the lead designer of that effort. That consisted of a player's guide, a DM's guide, a monstrous supplement, a guide to sigil, sigil, I have to say it right, Sigil and the Outlands, the DM screen, and four poster uh, maps in color. And uh, Alex was kind enough to hold that up there for us. And we really didn't get much from Planescape in third and fourth edition. Nothing official that comes to mind, at least. But now we have a new re-release of the setting here at the end of the first part of fifth edition. And it is uh, quite an impressive collection. But first, we want to hear what Jeremy Crawford had to say in his talks about Planescape. And Teos, I'm going to let you take it from there. Cool. Yeah. So Jeremy has had a bunch of videos as well as uh, videos from Justice Arman, who was one of the leads on the project, and Wes Schneider and others, uh, Dan Dillon, who worked on a lot of the, the uh, character options. Um, so in this recent video, Jeremy talked about the, how the Planescape setting development was taking place concurrently with a lot of this 2024 rules development. And this idea of the multiverse, which was already important to 2014, he said, is even more important to the 2024 version. And that monsters that are critical in the Planescape setting are going to be seen in the 2024 rules and beyond. Jeremy sees Planescape not only as a cool setting on its own, the way you might Spelljammer or Dragonlance or whatever you happen to like, but a connection to the whole history of D&D, backwards to the game's history, forward to its future. The uh, creatures and plots from Planescape, he expects to show up and affect any setting. He wants DMs to look at it that way and feels it's that way for the game itself that they're building for 2024. He says, Planescape is the toy box that is most useful for a DM's other game. I thought was interesting. That is. And so in this new release, we get three books in a slipcase. The first book being Sigil and the Outlands. The second book being Mort's Planar Parade. And the third book being an adventure called Turn of Fortune's Wheel. And we're going to start by looking at book one, Sigil and the Outlands. What do we hear about that? This is what they say. The multiverse is everything known and everything beyond, encompassing worlds, planes, life, and death. The multiverse is infinite infinities, brim with wonder, terror, secrets, and above all, possibility. Every D&D adventure takes place in the multiverse. Beyond the lone worlds of the material plane are countless other realities and the paths and portals that connect every edge of eternity. Those who seek the wonders of the plains, take their first step into the endless possibilities of a Planescape campaign. Woo. So, Alex, when you hear that, being a fan yeah. of Planescape, what, what, what comes to mind? Yeah, I'll be honest. I, you know, the uh, this is the first book I've really looked forward to uh, from the studio for for a while. You know, I've liked some of the stuff they've done in the last couple of years, but this one, when I heard a while ago that they were doing this that oh finally this could be awesome and uh, so i'm super excited super excited i mean it does it, it is the the ultimate toolkit if it's executed and it should be i can't imagine that they won't um because uh you can literally go anywhere and do anything with uh with that which is just so 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 cool mm -hmm. and 
they give us statements like they have in the past with other settings, sort of the truths of this setting. And so we get these statements. Reality bending adventures and aesthetics unbound from those of mortal worlds. A backstage patch, the uh, backstage pass to how gods and powerful beings live their lives. Adventures are at multiverse scale and span worlds, planes, and possibilities. There is no single truth. Philosophies are pitted against each other and characters may re-examine their beliefs. The contradictions where celestials may be evil, fiends apathetic, and yetis sell snow cones. <laughs> and anything from any D&D setting can appear here. And I, 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 I read those and it just takes me back to AD&D. It takes me back to those original games where there were sort of tropes in, in, in campaigns. And even though we didn't have the internet, even though we didn't have as tightly knit a community as we have now because of travel and communication and so on, there were still things that you would see in every campaign that would spring up. Mm. And one of those things was we worship the gods, then we fight the gods, and then we become the gods. I can't tell you how many campaigns, even with different players that didn't know each other, they would be like, okay, we want to fight the gods and we want to become gods. That's my, if you ask a player, what's the goal of your character? Like 33% of the time, it would be, I want to become the god of blank. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And yeah. Is that, do you have that same recollection of, I, I of your earliest days there? I mean, I'll say that I remember things like, you know, letters to to Dragon Magazine that would say, you know, we were fighting some god and somebody used the push spell to push this god yeah. over the edge of a cliff and they don't have a flying capability. So they should just be dead. Right. And and it's almost like the play the DM thought that, well, this should affect the multiverse, whatever happened in my game. Right. <laughs> like, please notify everybody yeah. that, you know, whoever it is, Thor is dead. You know, sorry, everybody. And and yeah. and is this OK that my players did this? <laughs> So yeah, I think it was yeah. happening everywhere, right? And and it was something DMs had to kind of think through of how do you handle it when players want to achieve this kind of level of aspiration. Yeah, and even even in like the Forgotten Realms, they had that three book series where the mm -hmm. player characters became gods. The Cyric was one, and mm -hmm. I think Mistra. You know, Mistara or Mistra was 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 one, Midnight. and there mm -hmm. Kelimvor, I think. Yeah, what was was one. And that just sort of reinforced this idea that, you know, going into the dungeons and fighting the dragons and taking the treasure, yeah, that's fine, but we want something bigger. Mm -hmm. I feel like Planescape was so we had books like Deities and Demigods and, and Manual of the Planes, mm -hmm. which DMs could use, but I feel like Planescape was this not only did they reach out to say, yeah, we acknowledge that you like this. This is, we're going to show you how to do it. And this is how to make a fun campaign out of it. Do your experiences sort of mirror mine in that? If Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're talking about when the, and the whole point, quite frankly, of Deities and Demigod book is when you have uh, gods with an armor class rating and hit points, what do you think is going to happen? You know, that's right. just, uh, that is 100% what everyone thought about uh, when, um, as you were flipping through that book, like, oh, if I, my character could actually 
you know, fight Merlin or whatever, you know, it was just crazy. Uh, so yeah, I, I completely agree. That was, I, that really makes me feel uber nostalgic thinking about all that stuff. Uh-huh. And, and so one of the things we'll look at as we look at this book is, you know, how do they continue this trend? Do they accept it? Do they embrace this sort of huge and expansive multiverse, but also the huge and expansive desires of the players to interact with that multiverse? Uh, how how well do they support that? Something that at least I will be keeping my eye on. Teos, I, I know you have something to say. Yeah. <laughs> on, on my end, they, they invoke a couple of times the everywhere, everything all at once. Is that right? Is that the name of it? Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 that's fine, right? But but I think that is what I would see as the challenge when I start reading this chapter. I go, that's a tall order, right? Like that is excellence. It's it's film excellence. It's storytelling excellence. It's incredible story weaving. I could never write something like the plot of that movie, right? And a lot of the really good time travel, mind bending type things. I I'm, I mean. That's tough. It's really tough. And so what I'm wondering when I'm reading this is, are you going to empower me to somehow create these kinds of things that tell stories about infinity and probability and permutations and so on? And if so, how? How are you going to show me how to do that so that I don't just end up saying, look, the planes. (laughs) Now, what do we do now? Uh, There's some gnolls. You fight them, right? Like, how do we make it really feel tangible and real and and awesome and not just burn it out and have it be background right and and that's one of the tough things that i think planescape often to me as a fan and i was not a big planescape um consumer back in in the twoe days um but it often felt to me like it was a lot of props but not the story to back it up that i wanted and things to me that registered when it came to the planes were things like the Orca series with the Throne of Bloodstone. Those were things that I thought, I am really actually in the planes doing big, phenomenal things writ large. That speaks to me better than, say, Modron March, which we reviewed on our show, right? Like, cool ideas, but mm. so that's, that's where I start with this yeah. book. I go, okay, can you, can you finally win me over big time uh, on this? Yeah. As 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 I was reading the three truths, which is the next section here, uh, I thought of all those contradictions, and and I'll t- t- say why in a second. So the three truths are center of the multiverse. Nothing can be the center because the multiverse is infinite. Then it says the unity of rings. The multiverse is composed of infinite rings, systems, cycles, orbits, planes, even sigil. If you follow something long enough, you'll return to where you started. And then the third truth is there is a rule of threes. Everything happens in threes. And so those are the three truths. And all I was thinking there is I love these contradictions and I hate these contradictions. (laughs) Why do you hate them? Because it says infinity can't have a center, but everything's a ring. Well, if you Mm. have a ring, by definition, there's a center to it. And this pure chaos, this pure things but there's orbits and cycles and systems which is the opposite of this infinity right it's it's taking the chaos and you're you're defining it you're putting a system in place which is a contradiction of chaos and 
to, to me, this describes all role-playing games, right? Because players want to be able to tell these amazing stories that defy everything, but there's a system in which they need to work to do that, which yeah. by definition limits what they can do. And so all of these tensions and all of these contradictions are sort of like celebrated, but also put into place. And and I think it goes to what you're saying, Teos, which is, you know, how do you make something so beautiful and spanning and intricate at the same time as, you know, hurting four or five players through a story where things or the rules are saying one thing and they're saying another and <laughs> how do you make it all work it it's yeah. it's a convoluted mess and i want to see how it all gets sorted out in these books when i look at the um the the three truths i think you know these are fun and i'm glad you kept them from the old rules but also i don't know how i use these um and and how i use them without well I think they're a little better than, and I'm getting ahead of myself here in terms of review, but you know, the, the factions, the factions are another of those things that are sort of contradictory and, and maybe a little simplistic. And you think really, this is how the city runs with a group of people that think this, <laughs> like it's maybe too simple. Each of the factions is maybe too simple an argument that they use. And it makes me wonder as DM, what do, what do I do with these folks? how do I properly lean into this to make it really work well? And, and at least in the, the, the published adventures that I've read from the olden days, hit or miss as to how well it works for me, at least personally. Yeah. The factions bring one more thing to light, which I noticed, which is again, going back to the AD and D days, the first thing that would ruin a campaign more than anything is magic items. The second thing that ruins a campaign more than anything is uh, conflict among players' personalities. Mm -hmm. And the third thing for at least the games I was, was philosophical arguments, generally around alignment. <laughs> Someone said, well, I'm chaotic neutral. So that means I can be nice one day and kill someone the next, and it's all the same thing because it's chaos. And then we're like, no, that's not what chaotic neutral means. If you kill someone, you're evil. You're you're then chaotic evil. You just you can't, right? And so all these philosophical arguments came up, and I feel like Planescape just took those and made them bigger. They made mm -hmm. them like a center point of a campaign, as opposed to this thing that see people were arguing about on the side while you, the DM, were hoping that they would actually follow your storyline. And you know, get to the cool scene where the dragons fighting with the Tarasque or whatever, and uh, and so that when I see see Planescape, that's the third thing I think of, which is okay, philosophy and clubs, good and evil, or <laughs> chaos and law, you know, becoming amateur philosophy hour at the D and D table, which which is not something that I want. <laughs> Alex, you you must have you must have some. Uh, some things to say about that yeah for sure you know maybe we should just go to the uh, Baldur's gate rule of a, or a plan of alignment that you're by your conduct you have your your alignment morphs you know based on what your <laughs> actions are uh but uh 
No, absolutely. I mean, at the very least, what uh, this will allow people to do incredibly and easily, hopefully, is to uh, take materials from other publishers and use them, you know, pop back and forth without having to deal with, hey, I'm going to port this into my homebrew or so on. I mean, that would be that that at, at a minimal, uh, it should accomplish that. And you can, you know, as far as the greater philosophical discussions, and you know, that that will uh those will always happen. Uh, and, uh, uh, but hopefully, you know, I'm, I, I can't wait to read the, into it a little more uh, and see if they actually do that or if they're just playing. Cause those are, yeah, those three rules have been around for a while. Um, those three truths. I mean, and uh, if what they actually, if they actually try to give mechanical weight to them somehow um, that, uh, that will be fascinating. Hmm. You can't yeah. do this because it's, you know, I, you know, that would be really neat. <laughs> I, I, I want to see that. Yeah. You can get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop, no matter how many licks <laughs> yeah. you get. It's yeah. definitely more than three. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we do get in chapter one right away. We go away from the sort of overview of what Planescape is, the rules of it, and get right into the character options, get right into the nitty gritty. And we start with two backgrounds. And as we've seen with the latest releases, these backgrounds have a little bit more of a bite to them, a little bit more power to them than the backgrounds that we're used to from our player's handbook. Uh, Teos, you want to cover what these two backgrounds are and what they do? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, if you don't use one of these two and you don't have a feat, then as usual, you're told, choose skilled or tough. <laughs> That's all you mm -hmm. get. Uh, but you could be a gate warden. And the quote here is, you spent a significant amount of time somewhere influenced by intense planar forces or portal to another plane of existence, such as one of the gate towns in the outlands. You, you are accustomed to experiences that would leave others reeling in terror or enraptured by otherworldly beauty. And you are as comfortable dealing with celestials and fiends as you are with the vendors in town who might be one and the same. So... Uh, what's cool about this, it's a very good way to tie into the Outlands and a gate town because you could have been a gate warden, as the, the title says. Um, your feature is planar infusion. You get the scion of the outer planes feet, which we'll talk about, and the seemingly default free lodging in the community you came from, <laughs> which I find so utterly boring and lifeless, but so be it. That's what you get. Even in Planescape, it's all about, you know, having a place to crash. Uh, we get a table of traits and trinkets, which is pretty cool. Uh, I would have liked to have seen direct, uh, like a table that really says, hey, pick this gate town. Here's what you would know about it. Or mm -hmm. here are some things that could be inspirational to your play because of the town or other planar uh, influence that you have. I think yeah. that would have been neat. Um, they didn't do that. So that is kind of left to you that if you're, you know, if you're borrowing this book from your DM and you decide to make a gate warden, how exactly you're going to express that and where you're going to go, you've got to go off and do your research to figure that out. And what's interesting, too, is you can see how they are trying to make game designers of all DMs by saying your world can connect to all of this. So this gate warden may be a gate warden from your world to Sigil or to one of the other planes, um, if you want to pull that in. Yeah. And and the other background is the planar philosopher. 
you subscribe to a philosophy that seeks to understand the nature of the planes or some hidden truth of the multiverse. You draw strength from your conviction and perhaps a network of like-minded thinkers, such as the factions of Sigil, which are summarized below. Uh, in your travels, you explore the depths of your understanding and spread your philosophy wherever you go. So what's cool about that, Teos? Uh, well, you know, the Gate Warden, I didn't say this, but they have like a bunch of keys that theoretically could open locks somewhere. Here, you don't get something that may be useful. You get an actual portal key, and it comes with a neat description of what that portal mm -hmm. key could look like, some ideas. So that's cool. Uh, you are encouraged to choose a sigil faction, and we get a table with that kind of overview of what the faction provides to you and what it's about. So that's really useful. Like, even if the players don't choose to be a planar philosopher. They're probably going to read this section and come away with a quick view of, hey, one page, here's what the factions stand for, which is excellent. Uh, and you also get some rules for creating your, or guidance for creating your own faction and sort of making some statements as to what they stand for, which is also really neat because you could decide to just be from a faction that is a minor one that nobody's really heard of. The feature you get is called Conviction. You get the sign of the Outer Plains feet, and your organization provides you with, can anybody guess? Free lodging and food. Uh, could it be free lodging and food? Yeah, you got who would have thought? Yeah, it's amazing. Double, double hotel points? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. The plain army Marriott is ready for you. Uh, we get tables of trinkets yeah. <laughs> and traits. Those are all great. But, but yeah, it, it's, you know, you think like, oh, why is it called conviction? I don't know. You get free lodging and food. The other one was called uh, Planar Infusion, and you get free lodging and food, and the community came from. So, I, hmm, okay. All right. And so, with those backgrounds, of course, other than free lodging and food, you also get these feats. <laughs> and the feat that you get is called Scion of the Outer Plains. What does the feat do, you might ask? Well, you came to the right place to find out. The uh, prerequisite for this feat is the Planescape campaign. And what you get to do is choose a plane type, either chaotic, evil, good, or lawful, or the outlands. And then for each, you get a certain type of damage resistance and a cantrip that you can cast. So, for example, the lawful is called the agent of order. They get ability score increase. And then stasis strike, which is a chance to, you do extra damage to uh, once per turn, I believe it is. Uh, you could do this extra damage and then you need to, you can use that a number of times equal to proficiency bonus. And then you get have, can reset it on a long rest. Yeah. Uh, and you get a chance with stasis strike to restrain a, the creature yeah. you hit. Yeah. And each of those uh, secondary feats open up because of this first scion of the outer planes feat, right? So like if you were yeah. lawful with scion of the outer planes, then you can take that agent of order feat. Um, which is is neat, but I, I sort of found all of this sort of interesting. Um, like in Dragonlance, it makes sense that you say like, oh, you are a knight. So to take the next knight feat, you really need to have been a knight. But in this case, for Planescape, it sort of first says sign of the Outer Plains, you must be in a Planescape campaign. Why? Like, like can't I just say that, hey, I want to play this game? And, and what does it matter? All I'm getting is damage resistance and a cantrip. Why couldn't I bring in a character that's from uh, somehow touched by outer planes? I'm not sure. And then that the the idea of these other feats requiring the previous feat 
I don't know if I don't make a, a gate warden or a planar philosopher, but I want to say that I'm, you know, I'm a criminal from the planescape world. Why couldn't I take cohort of chaos as a feat? So I, I thought it was a really actually a little bit of a mismatch in this particular case, because I don't know that we gain anything from those prerequisites. Okay. So, so you're saying just let your whoever character from any campaign be a cohort of chaos um, maybe not a cohort of and... chaos, but but um, but sign of the outer planes. Yeah, okay. I mean everything should be with DM approval anyway. So, I, but I don't know that we had to hard code it, and I don't know that being within okay. a planescape campaign. Actually, where I might put a planescape campaign prerequisite is on these other ones. Um, but mm -hmm. I don't know that even that matters in in in, in DM speak. Um. And I certainly don't think that if you're playing a Planescape campaign and you didn't take Scion of the Outer Planes, that somehow you shouldn't take these other feats. I don't know. It seems a little unnecessary. All right. It just be. Uh, now I'm just thinking through ramifications, but I got to turn off the game design brain here for a second. <laughs> uh, we get we get two two new spells, as you might guess. They have to do with gates. Um, the first is called Gate Seal, a fourth level abjuration spell, which can close all portals for 24 hours. I think the casting time is one minute, so uh, you can't cast it as just an action. Mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of time, but once you do, it not only does it close portals, but it stops spells such as Gate and uh, the, the one other one. The, you notice the spell they didn't put there that it... that it uh Hayden plane stops. stops yeah what about banishment right uh you know and teleport these it, days takes you to other that? planes so any of those other things are all options now sigil has rules now on on how you you can't travel in and out of it easily but if you're say in the outlands or somewhere else then this is all valid but yeah it, it i find mm -hmm. those that was a little strange to, uh, but I, I guess the idea is these are specifically magic that would work with this particular portal. Mm -hmm. But yeah. why would why would and it's why only would, a thirty foot cube? Why would why wouldn't why would banishment still work? That's that is right. It, it is strange because the spell says uh, the gate the gate seal spell says that like it stops extra planar travel including spells like those and so i was like it's it's odd that they didn't put banish but hmm. i wonder if they left it out on purpose or could considered banishment to be one of those other spells that they mentioned uh since banishment comes up so much in games uh we i was just curious about yeah. that spell it, the, all of it is a little bit strange and i guess the, the main thing this it's a fourth level spell and it's always tough to balance these things because you want to somehow reflect the rarity of it, but the utility of it, and often the utility is really minor. And so the utility here is, you know, 24 hours, nobody can come in through this portal. So if you've got a portal, I just shut it down. And then I guess secondarily as a benefit, it's saying that the kind of magic that usually allow for plane to travel open portals fail. But yeah, why they named those two... And I mean, the area of effect is a 30 foot cube. So you could go somewhere else, you know, just 30 feet away, you could plane shift to or teleport mm -hmm. or whatever. So I, I don't know. Yeah. But I guess it's yeah. just supposed to be the sort of secondary benefit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it, it, it was sort of odd as, as I was trying to suss out what's the point of this? Why yeah. was this writer put in this spell? Yeah, and, and the other thing, Sean, is like you mentioned with the casting time is that those kinds of casting times tend to often kill its use because a lot of times the fun of it is really like they're hot on our trail. Let's maybe slow them down or make it hard for them to get here. But now you need to have a whole minute <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, it was an interesting mm -hmm. thought experiment as I was trying to figure out what, what it could do. Now I want to um, look at the adventure and see whether you can break the adventure with this spell at all. <laughs> can you, or or yeah. is there no use for it whatsoever, right? And neither would make me happy, but I'm not going to bother yeah. looking for it. I'll probably forget. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the second spell we get is called Warp Sense, a second level divination spell that you can use to detect portals or learn the destination of a portal and what key is needed to activate that portal. So, you know, we get a lot of very specific planescape um, specific spells here that hopefully, as Teo said, will come up and be useful during the actual adventure that is supposed to show off a planescape campaign. And finally, we get three magic items that players may uh, may find. A Mimir, a Portal Compass, and a Sensory Stone. Uh, Teos, you want to take us through those? Sure. So the Talking Skull uh, can cast Legend Lore, and it knows most DMG lore about the planes. So you can check out our review of that to see what they know. Uh, it floats. So an interesting thing about it is someone else can catch it or it can take damage. That's a little bit kind of interesting. You have to be maybe, maybe protect it um, or carry it most of the time and then activate it so it floats near you to ask it questions. Um, and uh, Mimirs are, are speaking to you as you read this book. So you'll see kind of quotes from uh, Mimir as or actually, no, it's, it's a sorry, it's, it's an actual monster, Morty, who uh, looks like a Mimir, but is different. Um, but at least it gets you in the mood for sort of you can interact by it. What I like a lot about the Mimir and Morty as well is it's this idea of a gateway between an in-game gateway or, or voice piece for the DM, right? The mouthpiece of the DM. The DM can use the excuse of this talking skull to give you clues, point you in the right direction, prevent calamities, or allow them you know, as you see fit. I like that about it. What about the portal compass? So it just simply points you in the direction of the last portal that you went through as long as you're on the same plane. So it helps you get back to where you were. I mean, I'm trying to think of the last time since the very early editions that some DM would be mean enough to say, well, you don't know how to get back there. Dude, um, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> you're a terrible man. No, I don't I know. Am. Uh, and then the sensory stone, you can record a short sensation of up to six seconds. And someone who gets that sensory stone can then replay that sensation and harmlessly experience it. That's a cool adventure piece that you could use in, in adventures. As a bonus, bonus action, you can also end the charmed or frightened condition on yourself, destroying the stone in the process. Interesting. Yeah. All right. And that is the items and the mechanics of players. In Sean. Yeah. If if you if I might go back a bit, uh, in addition to those um, feats that play off of the plane types, um, mm -hmm. so there's Agent of Order, Baleful Sign, and Cohort Chaos that'll give you sort of little minor things as well as increasing your ability. 
Um, there is also this uh, planar wanderer, which is um, when you finish a long rest, you gain resistance to cold acid or fire. And this lets you make an arcana check to try to force a portal open or closed for an hour as an action. And if you fail, you take 3d8 psychic. But if you succeed, then you get to either open or close that. So that's another way you can deal with portals. And it also gives you portal sense to know the direction of the last planar portal you used, if on your current plane, and then also detect hidden portals. So it's weird that there's sort of this overlap here. Hmm. And that's a little touchy because, you know, you might take this feat, but then you get a portal compass. So now you don't have to use that. And then maybe, you know, someone casts the spell to find a portal and you're like, oh, I have this feed or, you know, it can you yeah. can get a little bit of that kind of uh, interaction going on. Yep. And the last feat uh, that's outside of that tree is Righteous Heritor, where you get to increase an ability score by one and you can soothe pain as a reaction. You can reduce damage to you or a creature within 30 feet. And then you get that back after a proficiency bonus number of times per long rest. So a few, a few feats there that you could take in your Planescape campaign. And we are out of time, but next time we will come back and we will look at Sigil, the City of Doors, which is chapter two of the first book of the Planescape setting. And I wanted to say, Alex, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your good news and your convention and your Planescape knowledge with us. Uh, if people want to follow you on social media, where would they go? Yeah, I still am on the Twitter monster. Uh, I'm still uh, known as GHC and Tacos. Who knows for how long, you know, as that thing <laughs> continues to collapse. Uh, uh -huh. And uh, that's really about it. I, yeah, I, yeah, I have a, I have a very small Facebook presence. Yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, kind of around here and and kicking around Madison, Middleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> there you go. But if you are a historian of role playing games, you definitely want to follow Alex because he does use uh, his social media to show off his collection, which is a super fascinating trip through memory lane for a lot of us. And it talks a lot about the history of, of this game we love. So uh, give, give him a follow for that. Hey, Teos, where, where can people find you? Find me at alphastream.org. My last question I answered today is uh, whether D&D sales are declining. Um, usually the answer to clickbaity stuff is no, but in this case, the answer is yes. <laughs> you can find out more on the on the oh, blog. Okay. And then later this week, I'm going to put one up on uh, what the overall total sales may be looking like, which should be fun. Nice. And you know where you can find me on all the social medias at Sean Merwin. And you can follow our show, Mastering D&D, &D, on Twitter, on Mastodon, on Blue Sky. Uh, you could get onto YouTube and you can follow us and see our beautiful smiling faces there. And you can also leave reviews wherever you listen to these podcasts. I want to thank all of our listeners and all of our Patreon supporters. You can support our show by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND. So we've just barely dipped our toe into Planescape. And with that knowledge, what are we going to do now? Hmm. Uh, I'm going to get a Mimir that can just tell me all about the places that I travel to. Because uh, I think that's like, like I need the Lonely Planet Mimir that just gives me factoids as I walk around life. Yeah. Alex, what, what are well, you doing? I'm going to think about um, 
why only two custom backgrounds when you have probably four to six players? You know, how are we going to do that? I will probably have to create some more backgrounds to make that a little more interesting for a, a Planescape campaign. Yeah, true story. I'm going to join a faction because I need food and lodging badly. 